Please be seated. I've got a story to read to you today about David. We get to spend two weeks with David, which is kind of exciting because they only gave the way that this is the Bible divided up by an editor and the way that they divided other things. I only got one week to tell you all about Abraham and Moses. And so I'm glad I at least get two to tell you about David. This is a story that you have probably heard. This is one that we learned as kids. I want you to hear it afresh. I want you to notice what David is doing in this story so you can know what's going on because we're going to talk about this. This is in 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose at heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. He has been, you are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So Israel's first king was named Saul. He was the strongest. He was the tallest. He was the best in all of Israel. He cut a fine figure as the king. He was horrible. He was a terrible king, running after his own wicked heart instead of the heart of God. Arrogant, self-serving, and he misled God's people. He would never stand up for them, only himself. And so God, in God's timing, after it becomes clear Saul's not going to change, he tells Samuel, Israel's last judge and a prophet, to go anoint a new king. And God sends Samuel to a town that we're getting familiar of hearing in this story, a town called Bethlehem. And he goes specifically to the family that God sends him to, which is the family of Jesse. And Jesse the patriarch lines up his fine sons in front of Samuel. And Samuel sees the first son in the lineup, and he's strong, and he's handsome, and he looks really good. He's the oldest. And God says, whoa, wait. He's not the one. Don't look at the outside. God challenges Samuel. Instead of looking at the appearances, which is how we all look at things, to begin to look with God's eyes and to look for the right heart, not the right exterior. And so one by one, Samuel looks at all of these fine young men, and he doesn't know what to think because he knows none of these are the one that God wants to be king. So the old man says to Jesse, is this it? Do you have any more kids you've forgotten about? And Jesse goes, well, actually... There's the runt. <laughs> he calls David a runt in the scripture. We, we translate it young, the youngest, right? But in Hebrew, it means runt. The runt, um, he, well, where's the runt? Well, you know, um, out with the sheep. 
Jesse didn't even think his youngest son was a possibility. So when you're looking for a new king, the dad's like, well, it's not going to be you, David, right? So this kid is out, David is out tending the sheep, not even in the running, the runt, and, and Samuel's like, well, go get the runt. Let's have a look at the runt. And they wash him up, you know, because they hadn't given him a bath, and they bring him to stand before the last judge in Israel, and the judge sees Shining through this 16-year-old boy, a heart unlike any other. And so he opens his flask of oil and he pours it on David's head. It runs down his hair and he says to him, you will be the next king of Israel. 16 years old. Now what happens next is so strange to us. Because we think like if you're anointed king of Israel, then the next thing that happens, especially if Samuel's like, you're the one, Um, is that everybody goes, Saul is awful, and we're done with this, and now, David, let's crown you, right? But what happens is, David at 16, he doesn't know this, but he's going to have to wait 14 years for his coronation. All he knows is that God wants him, right? But instead of grabbing at being the king himself and saying, okay, brothers, now you need to kneel down before me and let's get the tribe of Judah, which is my tribe, in on this. You know what David does? He goes back to the sheep and patiently waits for God's timing to unfold. David trusts that if God has anointed him and called him, then God is going to make the way for him. So he waits. And the next time we see David, he's an errand boy. He's a pizza delivery guy for his older, stronger brothers. His dad says, you know, your brothers are serving on the front line in Saul's army. Um, I just want to report from them. Will you take them this food? And David's like, yes, sir. And so he goes on an errand from his father to the front lines of battle. Not old enough to be a soldier. Um, nobody even thought of asking him to be a soldier. That's not what he looks like. And so he goes to the front lines, and guess who's taunting Israel right when David arrives? Goliath. So there's this nine-foot giant banging his sword, which is, and his spear was so heavy, two men had to carry it. And there's Goliath defying God, mocking God's people and mocking God. And you remember, if you were here last week, that the entire army of Israel Every time Goliath comes out and bangs his sword on his shield, they just tremble. None of them have the power to face this giant. He's too much for any of them. And their king, who they hoped would fight this battle for them, is hiding in his tent. But now David's come. And David hears Goliath mocking God. And says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy God? This cannot stand. And so he says, I'll face him. And everybody's like, whoa. Bad idea, right? He has been a warrior his whole life. Hate to tell you, David, you're a runt. You know, we don't want to mock you or anything, but you're not big enough. You're not strong enough. And David says... He goes to Saul, and Saul even says, you can't do this. Because not only is David putting his own life on the line, and he's going to die, but if David dies, and he's the champion of Israel, Israel is overrun. That was a deal Goliath is making, is whoever wins, the other people are the slaves. 
So they're really reluctant to let this runt underdog charge forward. But what does David say? I want you all to look into your study guide. I finally got for you the cycle that we've been talking about so much. It's on the front page. It looks like this. Um, You can take this home. Some of y'all surprised me and said, I'd like this for my refrigerator. Okay. If you want the judge's cycle for your refrigerator, here it is. Okay. So what happens is we see the people go through this cycle again and again. They forget God. Things become really bad. In their distress, they call out to God, please help us. Please forgive us. God raises up a judge to deliver them. He fights their battles. He leads them to victory. Prosperity is restored. And then what happens? They forget the story. They wander away. And I told you last week that the people wanted to stop this cycle, this cycle that's going on in their nation, in their faith. And they said, if we just have a king, it'll break the cycle. And we know that that won't help. It doesn't flow from the top down. It has to begin at the grassroots level with the hearts of the people saying, I will not drift. I will remember the story. The place that it begins is what we can change now and 3,000 years ago, and that's our hearts. And what we're going to see with David is he exemplifies this. He lives it out so people can see what it looks like to not fall away. And so what does he say when they say there is no way you can do this? He says, I remember my story. Not just the story of the power of God, although he knows it. He tells them, I'm not trusting in my own power. I'm trusting in the power of God. And it's God's will that I go out and do this, that this giant fall and that we are victorious. But what does he draw on to strengthen himself? Not just the power of God, but what he's seen in his life. He's been a shepherd. And what came against him as a shepherd? Lions and bears. And he reasons that if I, at 14 or 15 or 16, when he faced down a lion and a bear, the God who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this giant. I have seen the power of God in my life, he says, and so I'm willing to take this giant step of faith because I know that God will work in me to defeat the giant. He remembers the story. And he stakes his life on the power of God working through him. Now, as he's about to go out, and I want y'all to remember this too, Saul tries to put his armor on David. And so imagine a 16-year-old in the giant of Israel's armor, right? Because Saul was tall and big. He can't move. And so even though that was the best armor available, David says, I can't move in this. Can I get five stones for my slingshot? And I think oftentimes we think as believers that we have to be like somebody else, that we have to wear somebody else's armor or do it the way somebody we admire would do it. And all God is calling us to do, calling you to do, is to be yourself. To walk forward with the experiences you already have and the power of God that will work through you. So David takes his stones and first shot hits the giant right between the eyes. The giant is shocked. He says, who are you? What is this dead dog, you know, coming out to taunt me? 
He falls over. David gets his sword. I'm sure it was hard to pick up and kills him. And the entire army gives a shout because if David can do this through the power of God, then they believe that the power of God can work in them. And suddenly, after hanging back for 40 days, they charge and they're victorious. And now we think, okay, now, now David's going to become king, right? We're going to be like, okay, forget about this terrible king. We want David. Well, the people certainly like him. They make up songs about him, him and Saul. Um, Because I think a lot of them didn't know what God had done yet. But as David rises in popularity, guess who's getting angry? Saul. And guess who has the power? Saul. At least he has the positional power of his rank. And so he starts sending David on unwinnable assignments because David is now a military leader. And he sends him on things that he does not expect anyone to come back from so that he'll be killed. And this usurper to the throne will be eliminated. And guess what happens? The power of God is at work in David. And so time and time again, he not only wins against unwinnable odds, he goes beyond it. Not because he was amazing, because his heart knew the story. And he believed God was amazing. And so God was able to work in him. So eventually Saul becomes so angry with David that he begins to try to assassinate him directly. He throws spears at him while he's playing music. I mean, it's just awful. He sends assassins to his home. um, And eventually David escapes with just the clothes on his back and flees to the Judean wilderness. Now, this is a picture of the wilderness, a piece of the wilderness um, where we went. It's out by the Dead Sea. Can you tell from this picture how little grows there? This is a place no one would choose to live if they had a choice. But David doesn't have a choice because if he stays in Israel, he's going to be killed. So he's forced out into the wilderness. And it's 14 years, remember? Probably 10 in the wilderness. And all these malcontents come and join his cause. So they're like 600 angry people. Imagine leading that, okay? I don't even want to think about it. 600 discontents. It's enough to resist. It's not enough to overthrow. So the Bible tells us all throughout 1 Samuel that David is on the run. He's being hunted. And he keeps escaping. Now, the time I wanted to tell you about was that this is a picture from En and this is something that happened at Engedi. When we went there, it didn't happen when we went there, but we went there um, in January. We walked through all these barren hills. There's caves like this. Um, and you finally get through this ravine in the middle of desert to this little oasis with water and a waterfall. Um, and you can see why David would have hidden out there. But Saul is getting closer to him. The army is coming. And so apparently they abandon this oasis because they could surround you from any point this oasis. And they scatter. And some of David and his men end up in one of these caves at En They're all over the place. And they're at the back of this cave hiding, waiting for the armies of Israel, Saul's armies, to pass by. When at the mouth of the cave, They see the silhouette they most feared. It's the king. He's found them. We're done for. 
tighten their grips on their weapons and they prepare in this dead-end cave to make a final last stand. But instead of charging in, Saul squats down. The Bible says he's relieving himself. He's compromised. And so in the minute the back of the cave say to David, this is it. Kill him. You know, it's all these hushed, hissing whispers. Get him. God has finally put your enemy in your hands. Take revenge. And David creeps forward with his knife drawn towards the place where Saul is unsuspectingly going to the bathroom. <laughs> but instead of slitting his throat, which every time I read this story, I'm kind of like, do it, you know? <laughs> he kneels down and he slices off the corner of Saul's garment and creeps back into the shadow. Now, I know the question on all of y'all's minds is, how did he do that? I don't know, okay? All I know is that he did. He got the corner, Saul left, David waited, and when Saul was a safe distance away, David came out and stood on one of these rocks, and he held in his hand the corner of Saul's garment. And I want to show y'all what that looks like because we brought this back. This is a prayer shawl that all Orthodox Jewish men wear when they pray. And garments in Saul and David's day, and even probably up until the time of Jesus, were rectangular. And they were much bigger than this, but they would be rectangular. You cut a hole right here. And so they always had corners. Now, in numbers, in part of the law, God says that Israel is supposed to be different in the clothing that they wear. And so at every corner, the four corners of their garment, they're supposed to put a tassel. And the tassel reminds them of God's commandments and their need to keep them. The Ten Commandments, the commandments of the law, being kind, being courageous, being merciful. And so every time, if you're a Jewish person, you're wearing these garments and they're at the hem of your robe, every time step you take, you're going to feel the tassel bumping up against your leg. And so every time you walk forward, it's going to be keep the commandments, keep the commandments, keep the commandments. Now, not only did these were these a constant reminder of every step you took that this is supposed to be a step that is honoring God, but these tassels came to symbolize not just that I need to honor God, but that when I do, God will be with me. So they came to symbolize, especially for leaders, a leader's power and authority as given by God. What does David cut off? The tassels. So David stands in front of the king of Israel, the former king, the one who has let his heart with every step walk away from God. And he holds up the tassels and he says, I didn't kill you. But God's judgment is coming. May God judge between me and you. 
and show who is right, and God's going to do it. And today know that he has set me apart as king and rejected you. Isn't that powerful? And Saul, seeing his tassels in David's hands, weeps. He has this moment of lucidity, and he says, David, my son, he was his son-in-law, David was his son-in-law, what have I done to you? He says, I know that you're going to be king instead of me. And when that happens, please don't cut off my descendants. And David makes a promise to Saul that he won't. And they go their separate ways. And guess what Saul does after that? Keeps hunting him down. Doesn't change a thing. But what we do know now is that David is not going to stoop to his enemy's level. He's not going to murder Saul. He's going to wait for God to act. Wait in faithfulness that even if it takes 14 years, if I stay on the right path, if my heart is with God, then God is with me and God can do it. And that's why David is the greatest king in Israel's history. Friends, not because he was perfect. I mean, Saul was the one who looked perfect. And we're going to talk about next week about how David wasn't perfect and how he sinned. And what we're going to see is when he sinned, he still came back to God. He remembered the story. And so wouldn't you like to be a little bit more like David? Come on, really? Wouldn't you like it? Just a little bit? Just a little bit more? I would. Here's how I think we get there. You think right now of the amount of faith that you have in God. Just think in your mind and be honest with yourself. How much faith do I have right now in the power of God? How much do you risk right now on your faith in God? Right now, how much? How much of the story do you remember? And then however much that is for all of us, can we just lay hands on this and say, I'm going to do a little bit more. That when it's scary and I would rather be hiding in my tent, I'm going to remember this story and I'm going to step forward just a little bit more. That I'm going to speak out and tell somebody what God has done. That I'm going to share my musical gift, whatever that is. That I'm going to be an usher. That I'm going to teach that I'm going to go serve whenever I have the chance, even though I'm scared. That I'm going to lead a prayer in church. Friends, we are doing great work for God. Could we do more? Yes. Believe just a little more this week. Risk just a little more this week. And I'm telling you, in our day, we're going to see giants fall. 
we're going to get through the wilderness and the waiting and come out triumphant on the other side. All of us, us, runts, overlooked underdogs, we are going to change the world. We're going to do it. Why? Because we believe in the power of God. And we will stake our lives on it. Let's pray. Dear God, may the giants fall. May we step forward. And may we always trust you, Lord, that your power can do so much more than what we think or believe. And so go before us and help us to hear each one of us this week a call to risk a little more for you so that the world can change, so that we can change, and so that your kingdom can advance. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our mighty and powerful Savior. Amen.